Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. We have two more weeks, three more weeks, something like that. We are almost at the end. We're in Acts chapter 27 right now, and what we're going to do is we're going to be looking at an an amazing story of uh, what happens when Paul gets shipwrecked. It's Acts chapter 27 and verse 27. And what we have seen so far is every time that Paul gets himself into a predicament, or perhaps whenever a predicament just lands on him, we see God's hand show up. The title of today's message is The Past is Our Prologue. And what we mean by that is what we have seen in the past becomes a promise or an inkling of what comes next. And in Paul's life, that becomes true, and we'll see that today. But I think it also becomes true for us as well. So where were we? Well, as we picked it up last week, we are shipwrecked, folks. We've been shipwrecked for a week now. And so we are going to look at what happens to Paul and the rest of the, uh, the inmates that are on the ship, the rest of the crew, and where they end up landing with this ship. We ended last week with a quote from Charles Spurgeon, and I want to begin this week with the same quote. Charles Spurgeon says this, I would to God that all Christians were prepared to throw down the gauntlet. For if God be not true, let us not pretend to trust him. And if the gospel be a lie, let us be honest enough to confess it. What we need in our community, in our spaces, is a group of followers of Jesus Christ who are all in on the gospel, who aren't pretending to follow Jesus, but who are all in, who will, as Charles Spurgeon has said, willing and prepared to throw down the gauntlet when it comes to our faith. Last week, we talked about how life is not guaranteed to be easy for those who belong to God and to serve Him. And in those moments, the crucible of those moments, Paul was able to declare his confidence in God, both in God's knowledge of the situation, but also in God's promise to deliver him from situations. So now we're in verse 27. They have been at sea for two weeks now. We come to verse 27, and it says this, when the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. Let's remind ourselves of what's happening. Paul is being transported to Italy where he will stand before Caesar. He has just spoken to Agrippa where Agrippa kind of feels like there's not enough evidence to press charges against Paul, but Paul has already uh, made himself of the right to appeal to Caesar. So regardless of Agrippa's thoughts on this matter, he now has to be shipped to Rome. The way to ship them to Rome at that time was to go aboard ships that were already taking grain from one part of the uh, area to the other. So they uh, have 200 and some odd uh, prisoners. There was passengers and crews, uh, not passengers, there's prisoners and crew members and then all of the grain and the supplies, and they're making their way to Rome, to Italy. They've been on this uh, ship for 14 nights, and they've come across an incredible storm. So that's where they are. Right now, it appears that the sailors are suspecting that they're nearing land, verse 28. So they took a, a sounding and found 20 fathoms. So they're about 120 feet here. 
A little further on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms, about 90 feet. Verse 29, and fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and finished the rest of the verse for me, ready begin, and prayed for day to come. Isn't that an amazing statement? They prayed for day to come. They had spent two weeks in the misery and the terror of the storm. They've taken time to empty the ship of contents to lighten the load. Sensing land was near, the sailors took proper precautions against being crashed against unknown rocks. The threat of the shipwreck and death made these men men of prayer. And what did they pray for? We just want day to come. We just want day to come. You ever find yourself saying that kind of prayer? When the night has been too long, when the darkness is overbearing, and you have no choice but just to hope that the long, miserable night would end and that day would come. Maybe it's because of relationships, maybe because of the finances, or maybe you just feel like you've had a string of time in your life where you haven't caught a break and you're just praying for day to come. That's where they are. Verse 30, as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. Do you see the picture? There's some who just want to escape the ship now. Verse 31, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men, say the next four words, ready, begin, stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. So then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. There's these sailors who are trying to escape, and under pretense of laying out anchors, they begin to lower a boat so they can escape the ship. And Paul lets the centurion know, hey, listen, unless we decide to stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. The sailors didn't care for the passengers because they were prisoners, and they were seeking for a chance to save their own lives in the darkness, and they hoped to abandon the ship, leaving the passengers. And Paul said, you have to stay in the ship. Now, there's two primary reasons we probably can come up with why Paul felt like they had to stay in the shape, uh, stay in shape. That would help too, but stay in the ship. Um, first of all, the prisoners needed the expertise of those that were running the ship. All of a sudden, if those sailors exit the ship and try to come across dry ground because they thought they were close to land, all of a sudden now the prisoners are without that expertise. But also there's a little bit about Paul who, when he heard, remember uh, just a few verses ago, he heard from the angel of the Lord that said, hey, keep your head head up. The ship's going to be destroyed, but the crew's not. The passengers aren't. And there was probably a sense from Paul that told him, that if, the, that if the passengers and the crew were going to be saved, they had to stick together. He did not think that this uh, promise was meant for them if everyone was to evacuate and go their own separate ways. So one, they needed the expertise of the sailors, but also two, the promise he believed from God was intended for them if they stuck together, if they stay in the ship. So here's Paul, and he's desperately trying to help these men get to shore. He's also trying to help them understand why he has faith in a God. And so he encourages them to stay in the ship. So just for a few moments this morning, we're going to take a little departure from the book of Acts, and we're going to just talk about why it's so important for us as believers in Christ, as the church of God, to stay in the ship together. 
In other words, why should the church prioritize unity? And when you see those words, why should the church prioritize unity? We're talking about you and I, right? The church is not 432 Southeast Cain. This, is hap- this happens to be where we gather, but the church is you and I. So when I run into you at Fred Myers, guess what? The church is at Fred Myers. When I run into you in the park, um, the church is in the park. Whenever the church is gathered anywhere outside of this physical address, we still are the church. So as the church, why should we prioritize unity? Why should we stay in the ship? Number one, the church flourishes when everyone does their part. Let's say that together. Ready, begin. The church flourishes when everyone does their part. The ship needed everyone's expertise to survive, and so the church, everyone must do their part. So again, we're going to take a few minutes away from the book of Acts. We're going to go to the book of Romans right now, Romans chapter 12. We're going to unpack some verses that Paul had for the church at Rome. He says this, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think highly, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. That's a good word, isn't it? First of all, he says, let's just not think too highly of ourselves. I think there's two ways to think of this. Number one is you shouldn't take yourself so seriously, which is really good advice. But also we shouldn't think of ourselves in hierarchy above other followers of Jesus Christ right? Don't think of him, don't, uh, let's not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Paul's going to talk about the spiritual gifts in the body, but he gives a warning about pride and humility first. Now, when we talk about spiritual giftedness, we're not talking about spiritual maturity, We're not talking about how mature someone is in their faith, but simply what gifts has God bestowed on each of us? We come to verse 4. It says this, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Again, the church flourishes when everyone does their part, and Paul explains it in such a way that talks about the metaphor of a human body, and he says this, uh, we, uh, the human body is like this, all the members don't do the same function. And he says, even though us, we are many different parts of the body, individually the members have their own part. Now we are unified as a whole, yet we are individually distinct within that one body. And we err when we neglect either aspect. Unity should never be promoted at the expense of individuality. And individuality should never diminish the church's essential unity in Christ. When we all do our part, we flourish together. He goes on in verse 6, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. So he says, whatever gifts you might have, Your role, your responsibility is to use your gift. If it's prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, in generosity. The one who leads, with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. 
abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. So the difference in the distributions of all these gifts is all to due to the grace that God has given us. What does that mean? Well, spiritual gifts are not given on the basis of merit because God chooses to give them. It's just by the grace of God. And we need to do our part. So if you're doing your part, then we are doing our part. If you are doing your part, we are doing your part, and people will have the chance to see, meet, and embrace Jesus because of it. So why should the church prioritize unity? Number one, the church flourishes when everyone does their part. So are you doing your part? Are you doing your part as the body of Christ? And you say, well, Daniel, I don't want to. That's probably not what you're saying, but in our actions, that might be how it's portrayed. I don't want to do it. You can't make me. It's true. Um, but here's the thing. If God has given you a gift of, of teaching and you are not using that gift to teach people, there's a vacuum in our body for teachers. If you, are, um, if you have the gift of giving, and you look at Paul's words in Romans, he says, if you have the gift of giving, do it with generosity. He doesn't say just give. He says, if you have this gift, do it with generosity. If you can lead, do it with zeal. If you can uh, show acts of mercy with people, and that's what fuels you, that's the gift God has given, do it with cheerfulness. Here's the thing. If we all aren't doing our part, there becomes holes in our church where other people try to do those roles but aren't gifted in them. And so that person who's not gifted, who's trying to fulfill that role, uh, you can do it for a short time, uh, but you will get frustrated. You'll run on empty. You'll get frustrated. And a lot of times, you'll leave the body because you're doing something that you were never really gifted to do. So first excuse is, I don't want to. Uh, another excuse is, I don't know what my gift is. Great. Have you asked God what your gift is? I think this is a prayer that God would really like to answer in your life. If you were to genuinely come before God and to say, Lord, I want to do my part. Help show me what my part is. What, am I, what is my spiritual gift? Now, you can take a test. You can sit down with me or one of our elders or with Darren, and, and we can want to walk you through and try to do it. But I would just go straight to the source, right? And I would challenge you to pray and say, God, what is the area of my life that you have gifted me in? And when you feel like that might be it, then come talk to me. Then talk to one of the elders, and maybe we can kind of help you uh, narrow or understand what that means. But God wants to answer this question. And our church will flourish when people are doing their part. Second reason I believe we should prioritize unity, why we should stay in the ship, is the church flourishes when we fulfill God's prayer and his promise. You see, unity in the church is the prayer and promise of God. We're going to go to a different book now to highlight this portion in John chapter 17. John chapter 17 is shortly before 
uh, the very end of Jesus' life in John 17 is known as the prayer of Jesus. Now, the Lord's prayer is a different prayer. It's uh, in response to when the disciples said, hey, will you teach us how to pray? And God says, great, we'll do it this way. When you pray to the Father, do it like this. And you know that prayer, our Father which is in heaven. That's the Lord's prayer. This is the prayer of Jesus because it is a moment that we get to observe of Jesus praying to the Father. And guess what the subjective subject is of Jesus' prayer? It's you and I. It's the church. John 17 and verse 18 says this, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may they also may be sanctified in truth. So verse 17, what does that mean? For their sake, I consecrate myself. I apply myself to the sole task that they also may be sanctified or set apart in truth. God's prayer for us is that we would be set apart in truth. Verse 20, he continues, I do not ask for these only, He's talking about current followers of Jesus. He's like, I'm not just praying for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Guess who he's talking about there? Who is he talking about? He's talking about us. So you could look at this verse and say, I do not ask for these only, for Peter, for James and for John and the rest of these disciples, but also for Mike and Lori and Arlene and Loretta and Paula and Steve and Rita and Gina and Dakota and all who will believe in me through their word. This prayer is about us. He's praying not only for the disciples he has relationship then, but also for those who will believe. So we're included in this verse. Verse 21, here's the prayer for us, that they, which is us, may all be what? Yeah. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be, that they may, I'm sorry, that they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. In other words, if, if my followers, Jesus is saying, if my followers, these Simon, Peter, John, uh, these disciples, also those that will believe one day, if they would just be unified and display unity as I am in unity with God the Father, the world will believe that you have sent me. You know what makes people really question who Jesus is? Christians who can't get along. Christians who bicker. Christians who, um, I don't know, I don't know other polite ways to say it. <laughs> but Christians who cannot figure unity out really makes people confused whether or not Jesus was real. It's not whether or not they want to be a Christian. They, they question the very existence of Jesus being God's son based on our inability to get along, based on our inability to agree on who to love, based on our inability to just forgive one another, based on our ability to hold grudges. 
to be mean-spirited, to be envious and jealous and gossipy. I don't know if that's the word, but gossipy towards one another. And you wonder why people don't want to know who Jesus is. Why would you want to know that Jesus? Why would you want to know a Jesus that breeds evil, that, that breeds anger, that brings uh, co- contention, disunity? Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one. That word perfectly there means complete, mature. And again, why? So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. The next 14, 15 months, and the next uh, election cycle that exists, I really want to be a known for a people where Christians love one another. And that we will not mirror the contention, the mean spiritness the pettiness that will be on display for the next 15 months. Can I get an amen there? And here's the thing. If our church becomes that way, I don't want any part of that. Because I don't believe it reveals the teachings of Jesus. I think we should be involved. I think you should vote. I think you should be all in when it comes to the process. But this is a good reminder that our citizenship in our kingdom demand more of us. Amen? Amen. And if we allow ourselves to get drugged down to the lowest common denominator, yeah, I wouldn't want to be a part of that Jesus either. We return to the narrative in Acts 27. Paul is calling these guys out, the sailors. You got to believe it's probably in the middle of the night, right? And they're lowering the boats and they're trying to get out of the ship. And Paul sees them and says, hey, 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 Centurion, it's really important that we all stay in the ship. We need them. They need us. And I'm pretty sure God promised salvation for all of us, but only if we all stay in the same boat. We come now to verse 33. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food. Listen to the wording here. It's very interesting. Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. I don't need any comments on that verse. Uh, We're just going to move on. Verse 35. 
When he had said, the, Harry, are you with me? Right? We don't need any comments on that, right? Verse 35. When he had said these things, listen to this word, words. He took bread, gave thanks to God in the presence of all. He broke it and began to eat. What does that sound like? I mean, there's no record positive or not or are 100% sure or not if that's what happened here. But I don't think Luke is using that language by mistake. I think he's alluding to the fact that those who were followers, which would have been at least Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus, right? At least them took this moment to observe communion. Wine isn't mentioned because presumably by this point, they had already either uh, taken them off the ship or had already drunk it. Uh, But again, it's interesting that Luke uses that verbiage to describe what happens there. Verse 36, they were all encouraged, ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now, this kind of reflects their great sense of desperation. Um, This is their last meal. They threw out the last of it, again, to lighten the ship. Verse 39, now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they had noticed a bay with a beach and which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, and at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. Verse 41, but striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. Um... I find myself humming Gilligan's Island when I read through these passages, right? It's really the only point of reference I have for a shipwreck like this. They didn't know it at first, but they came to an island called Malta. Um, I found a couple of pictures. Uh, this place, this, this, is the, uh, this is Malta. This is the bay here. In fact, to this day, it is known as St. Paul's Bay. Um, there's resorts. There's quite a thriving uh, place in the area. You can Google some pictures and find some beautiful, beautiful pictures. I think I have one more. Yeah, there's another one uh, without all of the fanfare of the tourism and the other ships. And so you could see that, um, yeah, that they ran aground uh, somewhere along that bay. It's an interesting conjunction of favorable circumstances that have brought about such a fortunate ending to a hopeless voyage. And all of these are united here at St. Paul's Bay. Because if they had missed Malta, if they had missed this area, there would have been nothing to hold on to for about 200 miles until they truck, uh, struck the Tunisian, Tunisian coast. And so they would have uh, missed it and, and really probably uh, died while at sea. As the ship was struck fast on shore, the still stormy sea pounded the weakened vessel, started breaking it apart, and now they're run aground. Verse 42, the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners. Like they just have bad idea after bad idea after bad idea. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, but this is why, lest any should swim away and escape. The centurion wishing to save Paul kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. As, uh, and so it was that all were brought safely 
to land. To the soldiers, it made sense to kill the prisoners because, according to Roman military law, a guard who allowed his prisoner to escape was subject to the same penalty that the escaped prisoner would have faced, presumably death in most of those circumstances. Now, God gave favor in the eyes of, gave Paul favor in the eyes of this Roman centurion and helped kept Paul uh, and all the prisoners alive in fulfillment of the words spoken earlier. We come to chapter 28. We're moving along. This is the last chapter of Acts, by the way. After we, brought, after we were brought safely through, we learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. Of course it did. It began to rain and it was cold. These experienced sail- sailors would have known about Malta, but they would have been accustomed to the other side of Malta. This side wasn't really where people uh, entered the island. They would have done so on the others. And so once they landed, they realized they were in Malta. Now listen to what happens next. Obviously, it starts raining and was cold. They can't catch a break. Verse 3, when Paul had gathered a bunch of sticks and put them on a fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand, also because they had been very unlucky, right? When the people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. What do you notice about that word justice? It's capitalized, isn't it? We'll come back to that in a moment. Verse 5, he, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. (laughs) I don't know what to do with this part of the story. The great apostle had gathered fire. Paul's servant heart was evident. He builds the fire. Um, A viper comes out. And it wasn't just an attack. Um, the, The words used by Luke is it fastened himself to Paul's hand. Paul's reaction seems calm and and unconcerned. Uh, I can't tell, we can't tell that when he was uh, struck by the viper and he's, I think, didn't Luke say that he was, like it was hanging from his arm? I don't know if he's yelling and screaming in a high-pitched noise as I would maybe. We don't know exactly the scene, but he shakes it off into the fire Uh, The reason why the word justice was capitalized is justice is actually a reference to the Greek goddess of justice. And so what what they were thinking is, well, surely this criminal is going to get what's his, and justice, this god that they worship, is going to ensure that it's happening. The The natives were convinced that justice had finally caught up to the prisoner, um, they assumed he committed a great kind, a crime, and this goddess of justice would not permit Paul to escape unpunished. And by extension, it's interesting to see that uh, justice had no claim against Paul. Uh, God's justice uh, could never harm Paul, and this false god that they were worshiping um, didn't have claim over Paul. Paul had to be seen in extremes, and so for natives, their only way to make sense of what they saw is this. Paul was evil or he was a god. There's no middle 
There was no room to reason. So he was either evil, a criminal, getting what was his, but then once he was delivered and, the, and you know, the, the vipers in the fire and he's burning, well, uh, apparently he's a god. So they only, they only had room in their minds to uh, reason that he was one or the other. But Paul was protected. It was a promise he would go to Rome way back in Acts chapter uh, 23. You're going to bear witness in Rome, it says, and Paul wasn't in Rome yet. And it wasn't so much that nothing would stop Paul as it was that nothing could stop God's promise from being fulfilled. When we come to our final thought this morning, God's past faithfulness is a promise of future blessing and protection. God's past faithfulness is a promise of future blessing and protection. You, think, you can think about this on multiple levels, but when we think about our lives, no doubt you can look at your life and you can look at uh, the past in your life and you could see the ways that God has shown up in your life in the past give you hope, faith, and, uh, and gratitude that you can now look forward to the future knowing that God's going to show up again, right? Knowing that he's going to come through again. Our church is, um, is going to celebrate 135 years next summer. Is that right? Next summer, 135 years. You look at the history of our church and, um, and, and um, different ways that we have recorded that over the years, we have just seen God show up over and over and over again. And we look forward to the blessings that are ahead of us. Uh, for those of you who uh, are married, my parents celebrated uh, 55 years recently, uh, two weeks ago, I believe, celebrated 55 years of, of marriage and you know, uh, in the course of that event and in the course of uh, celebrating my brother's life a couple of weeks ago, uh, my brother who had passed, um, just hearing the stories in our family of how God has showed up and preserved life, how God has showed up and given uh, blessings and favor and protection, and now to look forward to how he's going to do that in the future. It's important for us to recognize God's faithfulness, that it is a promise of future blessing and protection. So God's faithfulness is not something that we only look at the rear view mirror of, but it's also something that we look forward to as we go down the road of our life. We're going to end here, Lamentations 3. Lamentations 3. This is not a often reference book of the Bible, but it has some nuggets of gold that are just so captivating for us. So like we did last week, there's three parts of this verse. Let's read the first part of this verse. Ready, begin. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. So you think about God's great love in our life. You think about the ways that he has shown up. Jeremiah is the author of the book of Lamentations, and he is lamenting, and that's why it's called the Lamentations, he is lamenting his city's fate. He's lamenting their sin and the way that they have walked away from God. And so it's Jeremiah, who is one of the most faithful prophets in the Old Testament, who is just pouring out his heart for his people to God. And he says, man, it's only because of great love, God's great love that we're not consumed. 
We are guilty of our sin. We're guilty of all of our wretchedness, our backsliding, our ways that we have forgotten love of God. And the only way we are not consumed is because of his great love. The verse continues this way. For his compassions never fail. Let's read the whole verse together. Ready, begin. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. Why? For his compassions never fail. His compassions never fail. The last portion of the verse, give hope for the rest of us. It says this in verse 23. They are new. How often? How often? Do you remember what the prayer was for those sailors at the beginning? (laughs) They were just praying for daylight. And there's going to be times in our life where we just... We are going through the night. We are going through the long, miserable. I can't walk too way too far from my handkerchief at this point. There's going to be uh, nights where we just walk through the very darkest nights, where the storm is raging and there's uncertainty, and the phone is quiet. No one's calling. No one's with you in that moment. Um, and you're just alone with your thoughts, uh, with your family, the storm is raging, and all you have breath enough for is to pray for daylight to come. And here's the soldiers. It's two weeks in, 276 of soldiers and prisoners. They're two weeks in. They've gotten rid of all their rations, by, by Luke's indications, they haven't uh, had a meal in quite some time. So they are physically worn down. They're emotionally broken and they're spiritually hungry. There's nothing going on. And through the course of this long, brutal night, they think there's land ahead and then it's just a mirage. They think there's land ahead and it's just more rocks. They don't know how far they have to go and they're on this road and all they could do is to pray for daylight to come. And here's this promise embedded in the Old Testament where Jeremiah is simply praying and he's crying over his city. He's crying over Jerusalem. He's crying for the heart of his people who have wandered away from God, who have wandered away from his teachings, who have forgotten about the, the traditions of old, who have forgotten about all the ways that God has shown up and they forgot all about how God has promised to deliver them. And here's this promise embedded from Jeremiah. They are new every morning. The compassions don't fail. His compassions don't fail. They're new every morning. And so we say, great is your faithfulness. Let's read these two verses together. Ready, begin. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Aren't you glad that God doesn't give tomorrow's mercies early because then what would we have tomorrow he's painting a picture a little bit jeremiah is of what was happening in the old testament with manna that was gifted only as they needed for the day and god's promise is this i'll show up with you every morning i'm going to be with you every step of the way um 
Does anybody have a rear view camera on their vehicle? Most of us do now. It's fantastic. We, um, you know, you put your car in reverse, and all of a sudden the little screen flashes up, and you just look there. You used to look there, and now you look here. <laughs> or here, but mostly we look here, and there's this little grid right there, and it just, you put it in, and you just, and you just go. Uh, Libby and I like to ride our electric bikes in the summer, and so we have this hitch where we put up on the back of uh, Wally, the Highland, Wally's, Wally's the name of our car. Um, I didn't mean to share that this morning. Um, we put the hitch in, and then you lay the uh, rack out, and you put both of the bikes in. The only thing is that when you put that in, and then you go to reverse, and all you see is bikes. It doesn't really help, so then you have to look up here, you have to look up here, and you have to do all that thing. Um, one time down the street in my, in my car, which is a little lower to the ground, I put it in reverse, and we got the camera there, and I'm looking back, and I thought, this is so easy. And I thought, how long could I drive this way? <laughs> like, just looking here instead of here. And uh, so I think I went probably 20 extra feet than normal just to look and see how straight I could go. And um, I'm not a... I didn't almost hit a car, but I almost didn't see a car, which is not the same thing. Uh, because I was looking here, and as I was doing, I was like, oh, I didn't know there was a car right here. That's weird. And I thought, this is probably not a good idea. We should probably take advantage of the whole windshield in front of us, right? Um, it's a really bad story. I'm going to try to land it if you stop laughing. <clears throat> the windshield's there for a reason, and the rearview cameras are there for a reason. And on our spiritual journey, it becomes really important as a family to recognize how God has shown up in the past. And you get to talk to your family and say, hey, remember that really difficult season of our life? Uh, So-and-so was only this old, and, and we had to go to the hospital that one night, and we didn't know what was going on physically, and it was like two weeks of tests, and then this came out, and now, do you, like, we're better now, but we went through that, and then during that moment, remember, so-and-so brought us a meal, and so-and-so showed up, and, and this bill got taken care of, and all of a sudden, and now we're here, that helps you move forward. So these are the verses that we hold on to, not only to look back, but also to look forward. It gives you confidence to look forward. It gives you gratitude to look forward. And you start to realize this journey is not so much about figuring every single day what you have to do and what you can't do and what you should do. But as long as you realize that God's mercies, his compassions are going to show up every single morning, that the God who had you yesterday is the God who has you tomorrow. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at roseburgfcc at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.